Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin. James, how are you? Knackered. Knackered? What's been happening? Oh, I was away for work for ages, and then I got home. I had 36 hours off. I went away for work again. I come back. I got shit stacked up to the ceiling. Yeah, startup life knows no peace. It's just one thing after another. Um, you know. You is is it what you kind of you, thought? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. You're just catching me at a particularly low ebb, Dan, because I, I, I got home from all of this uh, last night. And then, you know, sometimes you just, like, so much stuff is happening and there's so many things you feel like you need to get to. A lot of the time you you kind of you kind of jazzed on adrenaline, like, if you wanted something to new to happen, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what working uh, at a startup has done. If, if you continually look at academic life and you think, I just wish more stuff happened, um, this is probably for you. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but it sounds like it's like good stuff, bad stuff, like just stuff in general gets thrown your way. Yeah, yeah, often. But it also, I mean, new things Things obviously need to be pushed through to completion when they're started. So some things are complicated and um, require sustained attention over time, as everyone who does tasks is familiar with. But at the same time, new things continue to become possibilities. Shit changes on a dime. Um, a lot of things are up in the air a lot. A lot. There's a lot of air and a lot of things in it. Yeah. If if you find the pace of academia too too restful, and you like me have a fairly short attention span, and uh, dare I even say it, a, a a value for the novelty of new things, yeah, I can I can thoroughly recommend this, while simultaneously saying, be careful what you fucking wish for. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm, you, you know, I like to start every podcast with a, an accurate assessment of where I'm at. I think just in general, I like to be a, a good example when it comes to having a mood. I think people who are upset should be allowed to be upset, and people who are in a good mood and who are chirpy little shits like you should be allowed to be chirpy little shits. <laughs> people who it's are utterly gamut. indifferent should be allowed to be utterly indifferent. This is why American service drives me crazy because you know? it's too peppy. Yeah, and I, I know you don't feel like that. I mean, no, I'm no, really I know, happy. I know, I know, I'm, I'm really happy with. What do you want to drink? That one. Yeah. Okay. And it just you, you know you love the, Norway, the, mate. It's straight to the point. No. Tip, oh, tip. No, yeah. no tipping. Everyone just does their thing. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, this is why I like Dutch people so much. Oh, the Dutch. Do you like that thing? No. Oh, bliss. Bliss, just the bliss of unencumbered interaction. Oh, what am I talking about? How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, I, I speaking to some Dutch people. I had some dinner with some uh, some Dutch people uh, last night. It was uh, this was actually the first time I've been out for dinner and drinks with um with people from work since the start of the uh, of, of the pandy. So it was, it was really nice. Had I believe in- that Australians are calling it the pando. The pando. The pandy yeah, sounds like a, a juvenile panda. But uh, a yeah, pando. So no, Look no. at the little pandy. It was <laughs> He's uh, got it, little black face. It was it was great. Oh, it was it was it was just spots. Good to see you. Uh, you feeling normal again? Yeah, slightly, slightly. Traveling oh. tomorrow for the first time as well. Heading up to a uh, one of the other Lord, okay, Trond- life. Trondheim, one of the other cities. Trondheim. In- Trondheim. Yes, that's where the trolls are, I believe. That's it's half an hour from hell, mate. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, you, you would expect hells to be uh, hells to be troll adjacent. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, trolls to be hell adjacent. Whatever always, the fuck I mean. It's always a laugh driving past that sign. Welcome to hell. It is. Oh, I, I love. I love that. I'd much rather have that one than fucking Austria. Uh, just oh, one of my all, yeah, yeah, all yeah. time, all time favorite uh, civic signs. Um, it it is interesting just to see on a global level how all of this is now being gradually reestablished and where people's risk profiles are. Um, mine is probably a lot higher than a lot of other people simply because it's just had to be 
to navigate life. I just haven't had a lot of options. I still do all my paranoid being, uh, avoiding indoor spaces. Um, um, you know, I still do a thing. I still, I still, uh, go hungry and dehydrate myself before planes because I'm, I'm convinced that plane bathrooms are the, the one area where I'm, given the way they smell, I'm not convinced that the airflow is sufficient in there. Um, so I, I, I treat airports as if uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, coming in as a biohazard expert to a site of exposure. Um, I check my bags and then I wait out in the street like a lunatic. Like for real? For a cab. For real? Yeah, until it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's great. Because I don't want to wait around all the filthy people. And, you know, you, you, you do realize as well that when it comes to uh, the, the sort of uh, public health, scientific, epidemiologic perspective on this, that a lot of people just simply do not share your concerns. So any given airport right now, it's full of people eating Cinnabons with their mouth open, with their mask twisted into a pretzel and shoved in their fucking ear, you know, dragging sticky children behind them, and they're all like wearing masks down around their Adam's apples. Um it's, uh, you know, you go to places and plenty of places are here that indoor dining is properly in full swing, but um, it, it's different in places like um, Massachusetts and uh, the civic bits of Colorado because just about everyone's vaccinated. You know, the vaccination rate of people over the age of 65 in Massachusetts is over 99%. It's impressive. It's great. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. I mean... There's presumably transmission, but I, I would love to see a geographic map of how this works out because when you look at the splits, it's very age-dependent in the U.S. Um, the vast majority of old people, very, very overwhelming majority of old people in a lot of places have had their inoculation. And it just, the, like the transmissibility of anything when you're talking about a population that's 99% vaccinated, it must be very thin. Mm. But I mean, there's other states here where you're talking about, uh, it's like even the one-shot figures of people 18 to 35s. Like a, last time I looked, it was about a quarter, and that's obviously that's nothing. It's not even going to make the virus stutter step. It's just going to run right over the top of you. Um, from memory, when it came to deaths, right now the best outcome. For an unvaccinated state was 94% death. Um, as in, of all the people who died, what percentage of them are unvaccinated? And it ranges somewhere between 94 to 99. In some individual hospitals for cases, it's 100%. Uh, I couldn't tell you where I saw these. It's just like looking around. Obviously, you get you get shotgunned with American news media sources because they love talking about themselves here. But... You, you, you're immediately struck with just how two cultures the country is and then just how many different environments for this there are globally and what's, what feels appropriate and what people are and aren't doing. And there's no, there's no kind of strong intellectual center of it, really. I mean, what's been going on in Australia is very confusing. Everything was very good. And then it was very draconian, and then suddenly it was much, much worse than it had been. And then suddenly the, the vaccination rate, like the slope on the Australian vaccination rate, looked pretty much fucking vertical. So it's such a it's such a piecemeal experience. Um, I feel like we've been having lots of different plagues at the time rather than sort of one collective experience. It's um I I feel like there's a big uh like the different sociologies of it is an unexplored topic while everyone's still arguing about whether or not the fucking hydroxychloroquines are going to save you from a fate worse than coughing or whatever the hell it is that the completely mental people of the internet are going on about. We haven't got a plague update for a while and I, I feel like that was, um, yeah, I feel like that was our plague update. We should do these once every couple of months just so people know that everything's not completely yeah. normal on this side of the microphone. Just, just, just historically, one thing that I love is all these, I, I don't know, I, I hope to do this podcast for a very long time, but um, all of our episodes are put on Open Science Framework, which which in principle is going to is, is gonna last for, for a very long time. So historically, I think it'd be interesting um, in, in, you know, 10, 20 years time to, to, to look back and uh, I think it's good. 
putting all the stuff out there. Well, Long, I, longevity. Hope, I, I hope I hope so. I, I hope to at some point in time. I, I rarely listen back to our podcast because I know what I think. I was there when I said it. Yeah. Um, and I, I usually know what you think. But I'd like to come back to some of it in 10 years or so and find out whether or not I still agree with myself. But until then, I'm not very interesting to me. Yeah. But it's, it's all there. It'll be there for a very long time. I know. You've done a very good job of preserving it. That's a very good idea. Yeah. I quite like that. Turn them, and now they're all citable objects. Get citing our podcasts. Get it. I've, I've seen a few. It's, it's, it's been mentioned in quite a few um, syllabi. People, people are assigning it to their students. God, <laughs> which is which is nice. As a, it's a great maybe, alternative. May, maybe maybe we should do some syllabus episodes that are designed to be reasonable mm. treatments with nice language episodes. If you'd like some syllabus episodes on any given individual topic, where we plan ahead, but use something slightly more coherent than usual and cover the entirety of our thoughts on a specific topic as a kind of a subcast. Um, or even if there's a, a topic that's interesting to people as a mainline cast, um, we'd be very happy to do those because I like the idea that these continue to be useful. Yeah. I don't really like the idea of disposable media on a kind of an emotional level. Um, I've, I've realized in the last year or two just how much I resent the news um, because an awful lot of it simply isn't facts. Um I, I mean, you know, the BBC World Service is very useful when you want to know what what's happening in Kazakhstan. Um, but th- that's that's useful. It sort of adds to your geopolitical toolkit. But you know, some idiot said something about some bill. A lot of the time, it's all utterly disposable. So I'd like to not do that. And if that means we have to suffer through syllabus topics that are maybe not the spiciest things that we'd normally uh, attempt to discuss, then I would I would be very happy to do that if there are listeners who are interested. I like that idea, the syllabus series. Get in touch. I, I seriously want to do that. I think that would be great. Well, you know, you can, you can, if you want, we can get a series of topics. We can battle royale them in a poll, and then we can keep all the ones that, uh, that people think are necessary. There you go. There's Done. an offer as you're as you're all navigating the transition back to university. That you're not going to get a better offer than that. We will make digital course resources and then put them in the public domain for nothing and make them citable. There you go. Never let it be said that we didn't do anything for all the people who are honestly probably smarter than us, but have more less time or something. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> However, that works now. Well, there's a, there's a good deed for the day. All we need to do now is do it. Let's do it. Get in touch. Pause. Well, p- plague plague update over. What do you got for us? Well, let's um br- mm. let's br- briefly mm. co- briefly cover mm. <laughs> mm. Re- recent piece that uh, that that came out um that uh, that I published Nature and Behavior. Worldview, very very short. You only get about 800, 900 words on this. Mm, and thanks for the acknowledgement, by the way. Yeah, you 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 proofread it, and I appreciate that. Yeah, you didn't acknowledge me. I just did then. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not in the paper. That's fine. I don't mind. Well, there's there's no uh, room. There's no room for acknowledgement. There's no room. For <laughs> there's no room for, I don't have a word limit. No room for I references re- either. I re- I rewrote some of it when you weren't looking. Um, yeah, it was um, no, no, no. You, you cut things. It's it's all it's all slightly too circuitous. Like when you're writing that, it needs to be. Um, uh, I find the the between a brief communication like that, uh, the the language is actually very similar to a grant in the way that you have to kind of like move like verb noun, verb noun, verb noun, verb noun. You, everything has to be quite choppy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it does not give you a lot of exposition space. But I mean, at the same time, I don't think it was particularly ugly. It's it's far from a uh, it's far from a completely novel point. I mean, it's just the fact that one that probably um, readers of that particular magazine, I doubt, had really thought about before. Um, so I was, I mean, I was happy enough to um, to to shine it up for you. Yeah. No. Um, you, do, do you want to tell everyone what it was on, Daniel? Yes. Th- this was a piece on replication studies for undergraduate re- research theses. And uh-huh. this is not a new idea. I mean, this is something we've sort of touched on this in the show 
previously sort of throwing around the idea of including at least one replication study for a PhD. And, mm, yeah, and it, was your, it was your bright idea is that the, the, in a PhD series, the very first study, mm. to, get, to get your sea legs, introduce you to the kind of mechanics of working on a topic, um, give you a general understanding of the processes involved, how much it costs, how long it took, who needs to be involved, what works, what doesn't. What isn't, what, what, what is awkward? What can be thrown away? What is at the kind of intellectual center of all of it? The easiest way to get familiar with it is to take the parameters of it from someone else and to replicate something that you were interested in, a pertinent topic directly. Mm. Um, and I don't think I called you a twat at all when you brought that idea up. Um, cause with me, I think it's, um, it's, it's perfectly straightforward. Yeah. Um, Certainly, I prefer it to the traditional model of let's write an enormous review paper that takes a year. I, I don't know if that's always a good idea. In fact, in a strong minority of cases, I think it's quite a bad idea. Why? Because, um, because there's going to be scope creep. The whole idea of write everything about something that you haven't defined yet is very hard. It's very hard to know what needs to go inside it. Let's say we pick a particular facet of cognition and then we realize it's connected to a whole bunch of other things and that we have some disparate interests from different sort of connected sub areas around the kind of cognitive capacity that we're interested in. If you're going to review it all in the same place, I mean, a lot of the time it's quite messy as an idea. It doesn't really have a focus mm. and the thing that will be most valuable to you is not the kind of crystalline assembled knowledge, hoping that what you eventually end up studying ends up in the middle of it, because it's very, very common for research projects like that, starting from scratch, to change to a certain degree. For sure. Somewhere between sort of six to 18 months, I'd say, at the outside. And it's quite common for it to be modified. So how are you going to sum up everything you're going to change anyway? I think you want to start on the actual process of learning to be able to do it and run that in parallel with the much broader reading required. Um, I mean, there's probably places where it's really easy. You know, there's 40 or 50 main papers that's on the topic. No one's actually reviewed it. You review it. Okay, fine. But usually that's not the case. Usually... Um, I ideas that are sort of novel where people get interested have some kind of synthesis in them. And that tremendously increases the amount of shit that needs to be summed up. I, I ran a poll asking people how many, you know, considering you have a, a three study PhD thesis by publication, how many of these studies should actually be replications? And um, I think it was about 60% said at least one um, and a smaller percent of the zero. But there were some hardcore types who were saying, I think I think 1% of, of like the 300 people that voted said all three studies should be, <laughs> should be replications. But anyway, we're not, we're not talking PhD replications because I think th it's a little bit of a, of a different situation because doing a replication study might not suit all areas of psychology or the bipatrial sciences. And I think the most important thing for reforms, if we're thinking about reforms and introducing replications in education, is doing stuff which is, which is realistic. And I think replication studies for undergraduate theses are mm. a more realistic sell. You go to your department and say, hey, we're going to introduce replication studies for PhDs, you're going to get a lot of blowback. But if you first start by going, hey, let's do this for undergrads, I think it's going to be an easier sell. So, the idea here- Well, I think you you make it a possibility, Dan. The way that you make it a possibility is by assembling the resources necessary to do it so you can give it to people. I mean, it's presented as an advantage in context rather than something where you go, strongly consider this, no one will, or you have to, then they will, but they'll resent you. Mm. But now, so because this idea has been around for a while, other people have suggested it, um, a few initiatives, particularly CREP, has um, has been established. And what they do is they pick, they this is brilliant. They pick the replication studies because they the, the idea about having replication studies for undergraduates is that an undergraduate thesis. Uh, firstly, the the research question is typically pretty unsophisticated. I mean, we can't expect someone who's been studying for three years 
to come up with very interesting research questions. I mean, bloody some professors can't even come up with, with sophisticated research questions. Yet we're, we're, we're thinking that they is, cannot. <laughs> yeah, we're thinking that um, the people who have done three years of studies c- can do this. And so you've got these questions which might not be interesting to ask. And secondly, you have under-resourced students who who, who are running studies with like <laughs> with like ten or twenty people. So when you get to the end of it, it's underpowered. You have got a high risk of getting false positives and false negatives, and the study isn't eventually isn't going to get um, isn't going to get uh, published. But if you're doing this collaborative replication project where you're having groups of people who are all doing their their small um, low sample size studies, and you combine it later in the meta analysis, then you actually have something which can contribute to the literature. So it's really nice because not only are you contributing to the literature, but you're also teaching students about the importance of replications and pre-registering and posting your data and collaborating with other people. And um, I think it's um, it's a very nice solution. And the the I mean, a, a lot of the inspiration behind this was um, the 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 honors year in in, in Australia. I, I understand the undergraduate thesis is different from country to country, but the honors year in Australia in psychology is is mental. The the amount of stress they put. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. But I mean, most um, most terminal years of research degrees that for researchers have a research component, Dan. Yeah. So it's not. It's hardly as if it's new. Um, I mean, a lot of it's not actually empirical. I know a lot of people just write up what essentially amounts to a very big term paper in different places. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the um, the the fourth year system in Australia is particularly unusual when it comes to like how does the degree terminate. Mm. Why are you why are you ju- why are you justifying it like this? I mean, I'm, this is probably every single person who's heard this has probably gone, "Oh, that seems pretty reasonable." Yeah, fair enough. Well, I guess now Dan said it too. Yay! I I mean, this this is just from from personal experience of being a very stressful year. And if in that situation, if I had the chance to, to do a replication study where the research question was already there, and I was contributing to something bigger, and it was basically going, "Here are the materials. Here's your research question." Um, run your study. That would have been a completely different year for me. So it's a, mm. a bit of a. Would you say? Would you say that was your most stressful y- year yes. of being within higher education? Yes, stressful. Right. Yeah, more than PhD, more than postdoc. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. Um, but I think mm. if I mean, look, it, it's going from like zero to a hundred very, very quickly. Um, whereas typically in, in other places you have, you do your undergrad and then you move on to your master's thesis where you have sort of a smallish thesis and then you graduate to your PhD thesis or you, you, your PhD research process. But in the Australian system, you sort of, all of a sudden you're thrown in, you're doing, you're doing this honours thesis and then from there, then you're thrown in, you're doing a PhD thesis and you're kind of like, a lot of people are like, you don't have a master's degree? And you're like, no, I, the, the, the honours is, is um, take, takes the place of the master's. But yeah, for, for me, yeah, that, that was... Um, um, extremely stressful, and I just think that if that was, um, if the, the the research study was sort of already there, it would have been a completely different year. And I think a lot of other people would um, would share that. So it's a bit of a bit of a personal reason why I think this this can be very this can be very important, or it can, it can be very useful. So yeah, plus it can help fix science as well. Getting mm. these ar- ar- armies armies of students learning and also contributing and and replicating these studies. Like the, the amount of times you've, I've read a paper, you read a paper and you go, further research is needed. The, the author knows no one's going to be doing replications of these studies. They're just, they're just, saying, that as, <laughs> they're just saying that as a throwaway comment. No no one's going to be doing replications. But well, Yeah, it's a, it's a trope. It's, it's a, a trope yeah. now, isn't it? I took all these ferrets and I coloured them in with green highlighter and I trained half of them to play the maracas and the other half were in a control condition where they simply waved their paws. They show a difference in their P three hundred, but more research is needed. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. It's exactly it. And I mean, yeah, no one cares about your green maraca ferrets, pal. No one's, no one's doing that. So, so yeah, um, <laughs> check out, check out crep. I'll, 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 I'll post a link to that and some, some other. I'm utterly unfamiliar with crep. Crep, yeah, well, this is this is platform which does it. It and sounds like a French person saying crap. Is that how they say the word crepe? Different acronym. No, no, no. It's not how they say the word crepe. I don't know. Anyway. Because that's that's actually a foodstuff. It's also one of the best things in the whole world. Um, they're so good when they're made well by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, why don't they say the word crap in English? 
but hopefully crap isn't crap. So, yeah, check it out. We'll Did play. I get to ask you a couple of questions about this? Yeah, or go, are you yeah, just hell-bent on getting us out of this topic? No, because go for it. Let's, let's do it. I don't, I don't remember from the paper because these, these are a little different. Whether or not you're interested in standalone replications or whether or not you're interested in a network of people all contributing data to the same multi-site replication of a bigger question. Now, obviously, one requires more external resources. It requires supervision. It requires a sort of a, a, a broader uh, understanding of what a data collection and analysis plan looks like because then they all have to be the same, so it all needs to be coordinated. Mm. Um, and obviously, an individual one's a lot easier, more straightforward, but the the power, obviously, and the 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 acuity with which the question would be chosen will be different if you start involving ten to twelve separate research groups. Um, what were you? Did you did you were you picking a side on that, or was it just sort of anything goes? Oh, I said anything goes. Different departments want to do different things. Some departments okay. will want to, you know, department specialises in psychophysiology, and they're like, over the course of sort of two three years, we can get enough students doing a research question, and we can answer this thing. Other departments are like, we don't have the expertise to do anything, but we've got a bunch of computers connected to the internet and a lot of undergraduates. Therefore, we can, um, we can do a study which has been proposed by someone else, like a larger network, like, um, like, like, like crap. So I think both can be useful depending on the needs of the department. Okay. Yeah, that'll do it. That's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, it would it would be hard with anything. I mean, if I think of the, like some uh, access to technical equipment and expertise in particular, I feel like it would be difficult. Um, perhaps this is something that is a, a little bit easier to organize in the social scientific sense rather than anything that's even biologically flavored. You can get um, some pretty cheap pre- pretty cheap devices now for psychotherapy. Yes, you can get some pretty cheap devices, Dan. I own most of them. Um, but then you have to teach people how to use them. You're adding an entire layer between everyone's statistical training. You're adding digital signal processing of some description to the pile. Um, you know, like, likewise, if you're doing, um, some, some different types of neuropsych stuff, um, especially if you're doing anything gnarlier than that. So, yeah, I, I guess, I guess it's dealer's choice. Um, I, I wonder if the adoption of something like this is simply due to the fact that it requires other people who are in this network on you know, the normal vibe occasionally can be, let's get a big barn and fill it full of students and we'll throw some fish heads in once a day and then we'll mark their shit in eight months, yeah? Um, it, it, it doesn't really work with that frame of mind. You, you have to have... Uh, a coordinated effort to make sure that the, the topic itself is taken care of. I mean, one of the one of the outputs of this is the fact that you you end up getting information that's inherently useful. It's not just some disposable Malone that happened simply because uh, someone required a degree and the degree required words in order mm. and experiments to be performed, many of which had words mm. or similar. Well, I mean, so the, the principle is very similar to the Psych Science Accelerator have a lot of people answering common research questions from around the world. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. But, you know, it's not accelerating as, as much. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can call your, Maybe you can call yourself the 49cc psychology accelerator. You know, low-powered low powered engine, but it'll get you there. Yeah. If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, $5 to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is the most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. For links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. You'll be surprised to hear this, James, but um, today I saw something on Twitter. Oh, 
dear Lord, protector of all that is good and holy, please save us from Daniel and his fucking topics on Twitter. Go on, go on, go on. I mean, where else? You you, you haven't had a conversation with a live person in 18 months. For the first time I mean, was yesterday. This is- I, I know, I know. I feel, I feel like actually I that, didn't that, want to that say babies, this. I, I thought of this previously. I think I've been quite unfair when you say I've seen something on Twitter because it literally has been 90% of your that's external been, social outlet that's since, been my interactions. Um, for the last year and a half. And it really has got a lot of worse in the last year and a half. So I presume at some point in time in the near future, if you can just replace a few of these remarks with, I was having a conversation with a person, yeah. then I will accept the fact that you're not completely sad. It'll- but Continue. It will happen. You saw something on Twitter, and it wasn't a little icon of a silly bird. What was it? No, this is from uh, Guy Pricillo, who um, posts a lot of very, very good stuff. It's based based in Melbourne, and <laughs> he posted a screenshot of um of, of a uh, this was a method section from a paper, and um <laughs> the, me- the me- he highlights a section, and it's like it reads Cohen's D standardized mean difference effect size estimates were computed and interpreted. In line with recommendations where an effect size of 0.2 is weak, 0.5 is moderate, and 0.8 or above is strong. Now, this is this in itself is not unusual. Who because mm. we know, everybody knows, everyone with a brain who who's studied psychology knows that these guidelines were written by Jacob Cohen. Well, so, yes, in the sixties or something. Yeah, well, suge- suggested initially by by Cohen. That's it's, that's it's a whole different conversation. Well, I mean, there's yes, but there's also, I mean, there's a series of other rules of thumb when it comes to effects. It's not simply confined to D in no, this case. But um, but look, these these thresholds are, are very very common. Except <laughs> except in this case, they cited a paper by this uh, by Daniel Larkins. His 2013 paper, I th- <laughs> which precisely says the opposite. What's interesting, though, I, I think I saw, I think I saw, <laughs> I think I saw Larkin say on Twitter that that paper, um, he, he doesn't have the data. He, he's not precisely sure, but he thinks it's possibly the most read or the most cited paper in the whole frontiers publishing um, universe. Um, it's it's got a ridiculous amount of reads and I, I, it's like it's a stupid amount of, of reads and a stupid amount of citations and, and rightly so it's, it's a very very good paper yet yeah, this paper <laughs> it, it, it essentially says the it does not say this it says it says the opposite and no. and uh and he, he writes in the Twitter. oh yes the well-known lakin's god lakin lakin's guidelines for interpreting <laughs> so i think this is a really good example or an, another example of peer reviewers <laughs> Peer reviewers who have fallen asleep in the wheel, uh, authors who have fallen asleep at the wheel, and editors who have fallen asleep at the wheel. So, I, I wanted to talk about this this idea of how much should we actually be expecting peer reviewers to to do? Like, w- what is their role going to be? I, I saw, you know, when, when you talk to people in re- in real life and you ask them how long they actually spend on peer review, you usually get, you know, some some people will will say, yeah, you know, a couple of hours, and other people. Um, up to sort of seven or eight hours. Um, so it makes you think like, what sort of things do we actually expect people to do in peer review? Like, this is a very, very obvious mistake. Um, you sh- people should have known this to begin with. But if they actually read this and thought this sounds a bit weird and spent about two minutes actually reading the paper, they would have found out this is false. But at the same time, should we expect? peer reviewers to actually do that, to actually chase down the sources. And this is one of those things that when when you would ask a lot of people, if you ask me, like, do you you read every single source? No, I would if the claim is extremely unusual or I think it's incorrect, then I might chase it down. So what what role do we have as 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 peer reviewers? I've I've heard some people suggest that um, we should actually give them a little bit more value in the sense of potentially even making them as as, as co-authors. So you get this idea that for a lot of journals, the peer reviewers are credited. This person peer reviewed this paper. For instance, Frontiers does this. You don't know who peer reviewed your paper, but you can actually see you don't you don't know who reviewer one, reviewer two, reviewer three is. But it lists it lists the um the um the the peer reviewers in the sense of both rewarding them for how you did this peer review, but also saying, hey, like th- this paper being published, it's kind of on them. They're the ones that should have actually gone through gone through with this. So I don't know. I, I just w- wanted to chat about like what sort of stuff should we be expecting them to actually do? How far should they be chasing down references? How much should they be looking at numbers which look unusual, which is kind of more your wheelhouse? What, what do you reckon about all this? 
Well, the the answer is obviously very straightforward, Daniel. To be uh, extremely responsible, you should uh, read every single primary reference in full, all of it, including with supplementary material. Um, you should check every single number um, with tools that I wrote personally. Um, you should look to see whether or not the, the interpretations and methodologies are correct with the, um, the broader kind of mores of the field, your understanding of how the kind of statistical environment of measurement interacts with the actual physical space of the measurement as well. And then when you've done all of that, you should uh, prepare yourself for multiple tranches of communication where these complicated ideas are, are assembled and sent to people. Um, and then after you've done that, you should take all of that effort um, and it should never see the light of day ever. Because all of that work, all that time, care and attention um, should be something that you don't own personally. Um, that the authors will scarcely say thank you for, that the editors will take for granted, and that journal will never publish. Now, when I've finished being a sarcastic dick here, I think you can see the center of the problem. Mm. And it's not simply the fact, it's not simply my personal bugbears about how if you want me to do work and past a point where it's not my fucking problem, you're going to have to pay me money because goods and services in general cost money, I will not be able to buy cat biscuits with your fucking thank you email. Thank you very much. Put that to one side. The idea that the commentary, the points, the resources, the ideas, the conversation itself is somehow disposable. When I would say in some areas the normative peer review and responses to it are longer than the paper itself. Now, is it less overall work? Yes, probably. Is word count a great indicative measurement of what's gone into it? Not really. But is it insignificant if you've got 5,000 words of discussion and graphs and shit to discuss a 3,500 word paper? Yeah, it is. I, I have imagined a system previously to deal with this, which I think is, I think this is an interesting proposal. Okay. Peer, peer reviews stay anonymous. And at any point in time, the authors, if they get a peer review and they write, they say, no, you should check this and this, and this is good, and I like that, and that makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. If the authors from the anonymous peer reviewer, so there's no star fucking going on here, if they accept the anonymous peer reviewer is making a material contribution to the paper itself, they don't get added as an author because they're not an author, right? But the review is treated the same way that it is treated within the Frontiers universe, except it's added to the front of the paper. Title, 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 title by author, 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 author. New line reviewed by whatever. Now, that is up to the authors to make that decision, and they're making that decision purely on the basis of the feedback that they're getting, the utility of that feedback, and the general tone based on what they receive. Because otherwise, you know, it's like if, if you identify the, the reviewer, like some famous fuck, you're like, oh, I want them to review my paper because they're a special boy and maybe they're a special boy, I've been a special boy too. So it needs to be the authors making a decision about, I am reviewing your review and if I judge it to be sensible and intelligent and you're trying to, like, you're trying to help out here and I really rate the quality of your feedback, maybe we can work together on what happens to this manuscript now. So you get you so there is an identifier that becomes a mutually agreed upon thing. Of course the authors ask you and the reviewer might say, no, get fucked. I have no interest in that whatsoever. But you would find situations where the authors would offer and the reviewer would accept. And at that point in time you can you can continue to have an interaction on the basis that you're now going to be identified as like I let this through me, right? I am responsible for this. Now, this is very, this is, I mean, that's a very funny example. And you say, well, what role do the reviewers take when they didn't notice that Cohen's guidelines, the most cited thing since the fucking 
book of Genesis <laughs> was was somehow not Daniel Larkins. <laughs> it still makes it still makes me laugh because one, it's the most obvious thing in the whole world that's been obviously misidentified, and two, I'm a hundred percent certain he didn't say he that. Absolutely shit. did not say that. <laughs> Honestly, honestly, it's like it's like reading "God's Love Is Infinite" and then citing Satan. It's, it's, it's just it's sort of opposite it, of what he said. It, it's no, no, no. So yeah, they they don't go on the masthead of papers under under my cockamamie scheme. They they don't get to be identified publicly as a reviewer of the document. I like your scheme because a lot of journals, particularly the fancy ones. Um, an important paper gets published and then quite often one of the peer reviewers will get invited to write a commentary of the paper. So the paper gets published and then alongside this paper, there'll be one or two commentaries, typically short ones. Um, mm. This is kind yeah, of- putting, putting it, putting it, putting it into context. Yeah. I, I, I quite like those um, as much as like, there's a way in which this is kind of like a mutual exchange of influence and I can see how it would be responsible for the kind of closed shop mentality within science that I generally fucking loathe, I have often derived value from these documents because they often say things like, here's the one really important point you need to know about this other paper in 250 words. And I think that's particularly pertinent. I've never seen that elsewhere and I should know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, I get it now. And they immediately follow that with, well, it's not perfect. These are the things, these series of ideas here or this one big idea here is what is missing. Mm. And what would what ostensibly need to be taken care of in any future work? Um, here is the potential weakness. We don't think it's a weakness, but if it's a potential weakness, it's here. And those commentaries, like I have, I have found them valuable mm. in the past. It's almost as if experts, with sort of more freedom to write something in a way which humans read, will write something useful. Yeah, uh, it, it's almost the same sort of thing, and it's nice because it incentivizes you actually writing. A constructive review because if you do that then perhaps the the author will say hey this is good this should actually be published alongside and this could fulfill a similar sort of, i mean of course it'll be written a little bit differently because it is a review paper but i think it would be interesting i mean it'll be good because it'll um it'll be a citable object and it would almost fulfill the same sort of function um so i i this is one of this is one of your better ideas, James. I, I don't mind it. This this well, is- um, it's the, the 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 idea that so much is reviewed and thrown away. You remember my my sarcasm from ten to fifteen minutes ago. the The idea of producing it, of getting involved on that level, for all of it to simply be done in the service of whether or not it's acceptable in the first place, without any of it being sort of considered generative. Um. It feels like an enormous way. I mean, just the whole idea that we're not doing the proper identification of it to start with. I don't know why journals couldn't do their own version of the sort of publons thing a uh, fucking million years ago. I, I don't know why you can't just keep a, um, you know, re- re- release everyone who's done the reviews monthly um, without identifying which review they, they did. Some journals have done that for a while, though. Well, yes, some, not fucking many. Um, it's just, look, the, the idea that it's all treated as disposable. I mean, I know I, I'm working against my own interests here as someone who's hell-bent on getting, getting paid to do this in some capacity. I know I'm working against my own interests, but the, the idea that I refuse to accept within these discussions that everything that's generated, it just somehow magically happens to be disposable. It's a waste. I mean, maybe because because look for papers that you think are really important. Wouldn't you love to read the back and forth that made the determination of whether or not it was possible in the first place? And wouldn't you especially like to do that if the people leaving the remarks in that back and forth were uh, someone that the author agreed was making a materially decent contribution to the whole process? I mean, yeah, this is. I I like open review. I just wonder how it sits sometimes with other people, and I've, I've, I've just 
been so beset in the last while with stories of fuckers. I wonder if we just have the collective emotional and procedural maturity to handle the fact that we know who's doing all the criticism out there. Maybe the only way forward, I mean, I'm not discounting the idea completely. It's just sort of, you, you know, my despair moves around from time to time. Maybe, maybe the only thing for it is to put a strong incentive in the middle of you're part of the team here. Now, maybe your team yes or team no. Yeah. But you being involved is something that we want to recognize. I mean, I've had this myself. Like, I don't even know. What do you, and what do you do after you're done? Like, do you write to the editor and go, hey, you know how Reviewer 2 was a real nice person? Do you know how to contact them so I can say thank you? Like, they just disappear into the fucking ether having allegedly done their duty. I, I, I feel like it's not necessary to have that level. Like, when the procedure is complete, even if it's a rejection, Jesus Christ... Um, a lot of papers that are rejected are substantially improved through revision. It doesn't mean nothing happened. We just, we just somehow, we, we, we don't care. We have this whole category of knowing whether or not someone else is right, which is the authoritative position. And we're throwing the authoritative opinions and the authoritative authority making process away. Are you fucking kidding me? Ah. <sighs> I get mad about this shit. I really do because there's, there's, there's so much that's available to be done. And it always seems to require doing by the people who have the least amount of access and resources. It's always sort of, it's, it's things that are, that have to be pushed up. It feels a lot of the time. And I just, I don't accept it. Well, I've got the tenures and I'm so busy now. I don't have time for thoughts. Fuck you. <laughs> One thing that I initially thought when you, when you said this is, well, it's going to incentivize reviewers to give overly positive reviews in the hope that no 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 not oh, what's what good no sorry what good is an overly yeah, yeah, positive yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, review I'm you're so nice you're a lovely fella i really like do you want to be my little best friend and put my name on your pay fuck off I'm, no one's doing that yeah i'm getting i'm getting that but the reason why this get there quicker the, re the reason why this wouldn't happen is it's going to get published and your name is going to be there so if your name is associated with this overly positive review um, then what this will do, it will incentivize good quality review because you want to be that person that when someone reads the paper going, wow, that was actually a, a very good uh, a, a very good critique of this paper, provided some good feedback. Um, this is a good way of, of doing this. And journals may not want to pay $450 for review, but this could mm. be a way of compensating reviewers by kind of giving them that giving them that that recognition of hey here is a citable object with a DOI for your review recognizing the good work that you did the author says I want I want this to be published then then the actual reviewer gets the choice maybe that maybe that they want want when their name associated with it that's fine it's up to them but if they do they can say yes yeah, of course I, I I want it published um this this has legs James I th oh. I, I, th I think. Oh, well, well, let's we'll get go. some innovative uh, uh, PJ type journal pilot test this thing. It, I, I think, I, I, th I think it would be good because look, I've, I've obviously had a lot of good positive interactions um, within peer review. Um, I would say the majority of them were when I was a peer reviewer and I watched other reviewers uh, interacting with authors, and I have very strong memories of just how competent and selfless some anonymous weirdo could be at some journal, uh, being able to gin up something that was good for someone else. And by the time that they got there, I remember one particular thing. There was an American academic. I think they were reviewer four at this point. Um, I was reviewer two. I thought the paper, the paper was quite good. It needed, it needed a substantial variety of improvements, but it was certainly worth saving. And I, I remember checking in on this a while back, this paper. Um, it has 40 or 50 citations now. It's doing fine. Um, it's obviously been, um, uh, it's, it's obviously important at the time. Um, but I remember after four or five rounds of revision, 
uh, a Japanese author group and an anonymous American reviewer going, oh, change this, change this, change this, change this, change this. And I, st- I watched this thing gradually take shape until I got to the point where I was like, well, it's gone from I like the sort of data and the point that's at the center of it to this is actually a really very well, this is a nice shiny paper. It's well polished. It's easier to read. It makes more sense. The presentation is better because this, so this motherfucker really went to town. And when it was done, the authors could not be more effusive for thank you so much for everything you've done for the thing. It's like, no, it's okay. It was worth it. I thought the result was worth keeping and I'm trying to help out and that would be nice to each other in the back and forth. Amazing. Now, the idea, the idea that we can leave that on the table and not model it for other people to be able to see is also part of the problem because the anonymous veil is, I think a lot of people um, at some anonymous level, I think they're really quite unpleasant. And some of those people are scientists. and. When no one's watching, when you're committed to a process when no one's watching, some people will do antisocial bullshit. And having that not part of the process, having something else that's rewarded and modeled as an outcome of the process feels like a fine thing. Jesus Christ, I mean, for the right paper, something where I was genuinely interested in it, you could convince me to put aside my crusade to get paid for these things. Because the right thing, I mean, if there's, I feel this sort of, do you feel when you see a really good paper and something you're really interested in, do you feel this kind of parasocial sort of relationship with it? Like it has an identity, like it's a kind of an old friend. Some papers, yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you know, you know, the, the paper that I'm thinking of when I, I'm thinking of this in, um, in, in terms of, you know, my old research. Grossman and Taylor, 2007. You know, I love that paper. It's like my friend. Yeah. Like, it's like it's, I feel the same way about that that I feel about um, Catch-22 and um, <laughs> and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and, uh, you, you know, uh, books that were uh, b- books that I read uh, at, at a point in time where you think, oh, okay, right, okay, so this is the, the power of great literature. Fuck me. That was an experience. Um, I feel the same way about papers like that. And if you think, well, as we were going through it, Jesus Christ, it's not offered me to review that and then put reviewed by me on the top. I can't imagine the job I would have done trying to make sure I was friendly, pleasant and helpful. But at the same time, um, representing everything that I said as an opportunity to improve it. But on the basis of fuck you, this might be wrong. Check it. Um Maybe I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we don't really have a process where this is modeled. You don't really get to see. I mean, sometimes also you you have the the reviews are often included somewhere. And usually they're quite ugly documents, really. They're quite difficult. They're difficult to read and they're sidebarred. And we, we we don't show any sort of collective interest in them. And... Partly that's the way that they're written and partly that's sort of the, the, the habits that we've fallen into. I mean, we as like anyone who'd published something, I'm working on an actual paper right now at work. I'm actually going, doing, doing research again, um, believe it or not. I mean, I always thought this would, uh, I always thought this would happen. Oh, I had, I had something published the other day. Congrats. What was this? I congrats. I barely noticed. Um, well, new shit, old, old stuff. That kind of fun. No, 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 no. New, new, new things. It was the experience of um, uh, well, basically, um, myself and Gid and Kyle and Jack and Nick, who are a loosely affiliated connection of weirdos who've been looking at some issues with the Ivermectin literature. Um. We wrote a uh, a short piece that was basically saying, if you're going to do a meta-analysis in a hurry on a topic du jour, we really should consider it null and void uh, unless we're actually analyzing the data. We, we, we need, if we're going to do this, 
because there's so much bad research that changed the very rushed meta-analyses that came out on this topic, and they were terrible, um, and it probably killed a lot of people. Um, I would imagine that it did, in fact, kill a lot of people. Um, this meta-analysis methodology is not sufficient. It needs basically, when we didn't use the phrase, but what it amounts to is that basically these need to be mega-analyses. The data need to be inspected um, without uh, individual patient data level analysis. This this is th this shit shouldn't be trusted. There's so many poor studies, and then there's uh, more again, like an alarming amount that we think are honest to god actively fraudulent. Mm. So, the only real option that we've got, unless you want to go around to everyone's laboratory and audit them, uh, is to have the data included, the raw data, and the for that individual patient data. Yeah, the individual okay, the okay. individual patient data is pretty much the only hedge that we've got in these circumstances because it's too important and we're trying to do everything too fast. Basically, you need to, if you want to do a meta-analysis, you have to write to all these people. You have to do what Julian Koenig did a couple of years ago and uh, write to all the people, get all the data. Anyone who doesn't send data is going to have to go fuck themselves. And that that should be an expectation for the original authors and it should be an expectation for publication for anything that's prepared. Because whatever we're doing now is obviously not working. Very, very bad studies were included in meta-analyses by credulous authors and they reached what is obviously either a hugely muted or deeply incorrect conclusion and then we use that to treat people all over the world and now some of them are dead. It won't do. Uh, and I found where it was published. It was in Nature Medicine. Wow. Nice. I think. We'll have to link I to that. I think. I didn't pay a lot of it. It's, you'd be surprised how, like, the idea that this is published and exists has so much more emotional valence than where it was published. Because I had to look up while I was talking where that was published. And I know that's a- People will pay attention. Probably, that's good. Um, yeah. It's- um. I hope this is something that people can take seriously. Um, I really, I really do, because I think it is this whole episode with that drug in this context has been easily the most, uh, the worst, the most depressing thing that I've ever worked on in meta-science without a shadow of a doubt. Just, it's just been drab and pathetic and I haven't, uh, I mean, it's been very easy to find the mistakes because they're so fucking flagrant, but um, it's it's terrible. We could do a whole separate uh, podcast on uh, drug research and a crossover with public health during the plague, and I would not be calm for a second of it. I mean, if I sound sort of resentful and bilious now, I promise you I've got a, I've got five times worse hiding behind my eyes on this one. Anyway, I'm glad you like my idea. Oh, the idea is good. Ha ha. The idea is there good. you go. Tell, tell, tell us, listeners, if, if there's any holes in it. Um, but I, th I think initially it's good, and it's one of those things. Well, most of these most of these things do have holes it's in them. They it's are. in in general, yeah. In general, it's simply a, it's a matter of sort of balance and courage, and the ability to persist with the idea in a way that ameliorates the problems. Or it's the ability to stay active. This um, seems like an, which e is, an e life. Yeah, which. It, yeah, it, it, feels like, it feels like the point where the funding runs out, doesn't it, kid? <laughs> be, be, before we wrap up, I, I do want to talk. I saw a really interesting um, paper in Psychophysiology, a journal that we we both read, and we both, both published in, and this was um, this published a very interesting. Um, it was like a living meta analysis. In that, the whole idea was that they published meta analysis on this research topic, and they put together a very nice shiny web app, and it was very straightforward that when new studies come in it's very easy to add those new studies and it's very easy to actually go in the app, play around. It's, it's kind of like a mini sort of multiverse analysis and that you can play around yourself with different parameters. Um, and then when new data comes in, you can enter the new data and you can actually see how the conclusions change. So I think when you are dealing with uh, public health crises and all these new studies are, are rolling in, to be able to actually enter these new studies or potentially remove studies that you think are a little bit dodgy it's very straightforward to actually look at what the summary effects estimates are. So I like this idea and I'm seeing more and more people doing that. This idea of this living meta-analysis where it's very easy and straightforward to actually see how the evidence changes depending on how you approach the data 
um, but also how the evidence changes when new studies roll in. So this is good. It's very nice to see this. Mm. Some very interesting, very good stuff is now getting published in Psychophys. It's always been a good journal, but I think I think the bar's raising. And well, the the thing I like about this, Daniel, is that the fact that I mean that does not need to be published in a journal. You've just built a digital resource that's going to have its own identifier yeah, that's, that's elsewhere. What it is. I mean, <laughs> I love the fact that they've published a journal article that essentially makes uh, a journal article that would draw a similar conclusion pretty fucking redundant. Yeah, it's good though. That's funny. That's funny. I love it. <laughs> it is. Look, it is. It is an excellent idea if you have. Um, a topic that is well befit to uh, having that sort of updating happen to it. Now, that being said, I'm pretty sure that a lot of topics in psycho uh, psychophysiology, the journal would, mm. and that it would be the right context for that idea. Yeah. So, quite bullish on it. I'll have to play around. You should stick it in the show I'll notes. I'll check it out myself. It was good. It was it was very very nice to read. Very nice app. And um, yeah, it's it's nice to see. Good, good on you, Psychophys. Being very good. Registered reports are now now accepted. Um, very very forward thinking. I like what they're doing. Oh, thinking forwards. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, tell us your feedback on 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 James's idea about um, publishing mm. for, formally, more formally publishing um, peer review reports. Um, I, I think I think it's got some legs. So let's um let's see where this goes. Yeah, sure. Fuck it. I don't mind. I don't mind being wrong. Um, I probably have. I probably undercooked this one, but you know, I I trust you. 